If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. We're going to continue this series that we started a few weeks ago, moving not through the entire book of Joshua, but uh, through the first five chapters. That's what we're going to be looking at. And uh, today we make our way to chapter 4. The plan is, you know how plans go, but the plan is next Sunday we kind of conclude this series entitled Transitions as we uh, take a look at a portion of Joshua chapter 5. But for today, Joshua chapter 4. So go ahead and hold your spot there, continuing this series called Transitions. Many of you probably remember as a kid, keeping yourself entertained was a little different than for kids today. You know, today you got gadgets and all kinds of stuff that you can do to keep yourself entertained. But for some of you, <clears throat> right, you're a, uh, of such an age, not old necessarily, but of such an age, that those gadgets just didn't exist back then. So you had to keep yourself entertained uh, during summer and what have you in different ways. And one of those ways would have been things simply on paper. One of the most popular uh, of those uh, uh, exercises would have been something called connect the dots, right? So you may remember back in the day when you used to do connect the dots, and uh, you'd go and you'd buy a whole book of those things, and they would have a variety of pictures that were there, but you had to recognize the dots and you had to connect the dots. They were always numbered. Uh, they always kind of showed you what sequence to go in. Some of those were very, very easy. In fact, you could turn the page and you would see the next connect the dot puzzle, and uh, you could tell what the picture was already just by the outline of the dots. I mean, you could just look at it without even putting a pen to it and say, oh, this is a dog or this is a horse or, you know, this is a cow or whatever it may be. You knew what the picture was. They were just that easy. But then as you advance in your connect the dot professionalism, right, you came to the point to where you took on harder puzzles. And when you would look at those particular connect the dots, they weren't so easy to recognize. You didn't see a picture that just jumped out at you. In fact, you had to follow the instructions and sometimes moving from you know, dot number 24 to 25 meant going in and then going back out and then going back down and going back up and going over. And you just couldn't tell what the picture was before you started. In order to see the big picture, you had to move according to the sequence and you had to connect the dots properly. If you didn't connect the dots properly, here was the danger. You missed the big picture. Now, here's the thing. Our life in a lot of ways is a lot like it's a lot like the connect the dots, right? Our life is one big gigantic connect the dots exercise. And those dots are certain experiences, certain events that take place in our lives. For you, when you think about connecting the dots, there, there are different things that have gone on in your life from the time you were very young all the way up until today. And that exercise is going to continue. Those dots represent experiences. Some of those would have been very, very difficult. Some of those would have been very, very easy. Some of those would have been times of blessing. Some of those would have been times of great, great challenge. So when you look at the dots in your connect the dot life experience, say for example, maybe you've been through a relationship that didn't turn out the way that you wanted. Maybe you went through a certain financial difficulty in your life or you faced a health crisis that came. Maybe for you it was bankruptcy. Maybe it was divorce. Maybe it was a child who broke your heart. Maybe it was something else that went on in your life that was very difficult. Maybe it was a pay raise. Maybe it was you doing a career that you love. And you never expected to do what you're doing today in your career, but you absolutely love it. Or you're in a career that you absolutely hate. You can't stand it. You can't wait to try something new. Regardless of what it is, all those experiences come together to form an outline of your life as you know it. And the key is to connect the dots. And here's the problem for us is that many times for most of us, and I put myself in that category, we get so busy, don't we? To where we're running from one dot to the next. So we're moving from this life to you know, this experience to this experience to that experience. That we move through life at such a rapid pace that we don't take time to connect the dots in our lives. And what happens is our life is comprised of all these dots, right? 
all these experiences, all these events that take place. But because we don't pause, and I think this is why God built in to his, to his uh, you know, fabric of life this thing called the Sabbath, a day of rest. But because we don't take advantage of that, because we don't pause, we move from one dot to the next, one experience to the next, one up to one down, back to an up again. We move through all of that without ever pausing to put them all together. And when we don't, we never see the picture. When we don't, our life is one chaotic, chaotic event that is surpassed by another chaotic event that is moved on to another significant event that is moved on to another, and we never see the picture that God wants us to see. Well, in this series, what we've been looking at is transition and how every single one of us move through transitions in our lives. Many of those transitions, we never see them coming. Every single transition we face is a brand new beginning. It is a brand new set of circumstances. And in a nutshell, transition means we move from life as we knew it to a new normal, to a new set of circumstances, to a new experience of life. We move from one dot to the next. And, and those, those dots are comprised of different transitions that come that affect us financially, affect us relationally, affect us in our health, affect us in a variety of ways. But our lives are comprised of little dots that are often shown as transitions that come. And how we handle that transition makes all the difference in the world. We have to move through the transitions in a way that God desires, lest ultimately we miss the big picture. Now, here's what I want to present to you this morning. We're going to, we're going to see a principle that we're going to shift it, or, or sift it, excuse me, through Joshua chapter 4. And I want to give you a principle up front that I hope you'll jot down. And the principle is very simple, and the principle is this, that transi transitions in our lives that we face, regardless of what they look like, transitions in our lives ultimately become spiritual markers of God's faithfulness and God's work in our lives. That when we look at our lives as a set of transitions, we can bring that simple principle up on the screen, if you would. That, that when we look at our lives and we, we begin to connect the dots, we see that many of those dots, events, circumstances that come in our lives, involve transition, moving from one set of circumstances to another. That when we look at our life in that way, when we look at it through those lenses, what we see is that our transitions in life many times become spiritual markers, and I'll explain what that is in just a second, spiritual markers in our lives that ultimately highlight God's faithfulness, God's goodness, and God's work in our lives. We see this principle all through Scripture. We, we see it in Joshua's life. Joshua has these spiritual markers that he can look at. He looks back to the, to, to the, to the previous history of his life, right? And Joshua can see these spiritual markers, these, these dots that represent transition in life. Let me just give a few of them that we see. Joshua, back in Exodus chapter 17, had been chosen by Moses to, uh, to be a leader in battle, to be a military leader. Now, the history for Israel at the time was they were walking through the wilderness collectively as a nation, wandering through the wilderness. They would do this for 40 years. And during that 40 years of wandering from time to time, they would have battles that they would engage in as a nation. Well, Moses, the leader, Exodus 17, would put his finger on Joshua and say, I want you in this particular battle, it was against a nation called Amalek. He would say, I want you to put together an army and I want you to lead them into battle. And what Exodus 17 tells us is that Moses would ascend this high hill and he would pray. 
And, and he would become so weary that two people would have to hold his hands up. Because here, here was kind of what God was showing. He was given a visual of their need to depend on God. That when Moses' hands were up, the battle would be won. And when his hands would go down, they would be uh, overtaken by the enemy. And so Moses would have two helpers holding his hands up while he would pray. Joshua down in the valley is leading Israel to victory. And they would win that day. Joshua could look back and he could say, you know what, that was a spiritual marker in my life where I moved from being just an ordinary person to where the leader of the whole shooting match, Moses, said, I want you to be my military leader. That was a spiritual marker in Joshua's life. Joshua, at another, in another experience, another dot in his life would, would come with Moses off the mountain where Moses would receive the Ten Commandments. Joshua would come off that mountain, and, and you may know the story, he would see the people of Israel just engaged in horrific sin. Moses, the leader, had been gone. Now he comes back, and the people are just so far from God. Joshua would see how Moses would deal with that. Joshua would do much the same thing later when he's the leader in, jo in Joshua chapter 7. And he could look back and say, you know what, that was a spiritual marker. That was a dot in my life. I want to connect the dots. And I want to see where God allowed that transition, where I moved, right, where I moved from being just an ordinary person to being able to see how to deal with crisis in life as a leader. Joshua would be the one that God would, or that Moses would peg as his successor. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses tells Joshua, hey, I'm soon to pass away from this life, and I believe God wants you to be the one who takes my place. That would be a spiritual marker in Joshua's life. Joshua would have been one of the original 12 spies to go into the land, the promised land, to, to spy on the land. That would be a spiritual marker, right? Joshua would be in that land. We see that in the first chapters of the book of Joshua. He would be in there now as the one in charge. He would be overseeing the whole campaign. And he could look back to that day when Moses pegged him as a spy and say, that was a spiritual marker in my life where I transitioned and God was good and God was faithful and God was at work. And Moses would, or Joshua would have all these spiritual markers in his life. And as a leader, I believe, he would look back and he would connect those dots and he would see how God back there was faithful and good and how God was at work. But you had a whole group of people called the Israelites, two million plus, who also had to learn how to trust in God's past faithfulness, and how to build spiritual markers in their own life. And so let's take a look today at how Israel would learn this lesson and what it means for us ultimately today. The simple principle we're looking at is that transitions in our lives often become spiritual markers that highlight God's faithfulness and highlight God's work in our lives. So let's see how Israel would learn this. Joshua chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 1. Where we left out at the end of chapter 3 is that the people of Israel have now miraculously crossed the Jordan River. They crossed the Jordan River miraculously because they crossed on dry ground. All right? God held the waters back. Two million plus crossed the Jordan at flood stage on dry ground. That's where we pick up. So chapter 4, verse 1. So it says, now when all the nation, the nation of Israel, had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, their leader saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, take up for yourselves 12 stones. All right, you got 12 men, one from each tribe that are selected, and then they're going to also take up for themselves 12 stones. He says, from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, out of the middle of the Jordan River, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm. 
and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. A very simple command. It doesn't seem to make sense, but God is up to something here. So, so the command is, Joshua says, uh, we're going to take 12 men, from, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and you guys are going to have a, a specific exercise to engage in. Each of you go into the middle of the Jordan River. Now, sounds a little bit odd, but the Jordan River is still dry, right? Israel has now crossed. The priests, representative of God's presence, are there in the middle of the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant, representative of God's presence. And while the waters are being held back by God miraculously, he sends these 12 men back to the middle. Now, aren't you glad you weren't one of those, right? You've already come through it once, and now you're getting sent back into it, right? Like you're testing God extra. So you go back to the middle of the river, and he tells you to take one person each, is to take a stone. We're going to see in just a second, these would have been significant in size, to take a stone out of the middle of the Jordan, and to then exit yet again a second time. Now, this reminds me of when I was a kid, and I've shared this story before, that uh, whenever we would go on vacation as a kid, we would always do the same circuit. We would hit uh, my aunt and uncle in Atlanta, Stone Mountain. I've been to Stone Mountain, I think last count, about a billion and one times in my life. And so we would always go to Stone Mountain, We'd always go to Cherokee, and we would always go to Gatlinburg, and a lot of times we'd hit a state park called Vogel State Park up near Blairsville, Georgia. We'd kind of hit that circuit just about every summer, it seemed. And, uh, and so when we would go to Cherokee, we would stay in the same hotel. And, uh, well, it was, <laughs> there's a big difference between a hotel and a motel. This was a motel, actually. And uh, so it was the Drama Motel. I, don't, I think it may still be there. I'm not sure. And so we would stay in the same exact room. My parents were creatures of habit. If we went to Shoney's on Victory when it was there, it was the same booth, back right corner, every Friday night. So we'd go to the Drama Motel every summer, and we would stay in room number 31, bottom floor, far to the right on the very end. And around behind the Drama Motel was this raging river, which I went back to later as an adult and could probably almost throw a rock across it. But when I was a kid, it was a raging river, and uh, there were all these river rocks everywhere. Pretty sure this was illegal. <clears throat> But at my mom's command, we would load up the station wagon with river rocks off of the bank of this raging river behind room number 31 at the Drama Motel in Cherokee, North Carolina, and we'd bring those things back. Me, my older brother, and my poor dad would carry these rocks, not out of the middle of the river, thankfully, but I'm sure one day they were, and uh, we would load them up in the station wagon, we'd drive them all the way back to Savannah, and for the rest of our childhood lives, we would see those rocks, and we would remember room number 31, raging river behind the Drama Motel in Cherokee. Right? They were a testimony of what went down, probably highly illegally, there in that particular city in that state. Right? They were a visual reminder. So God is up to something here. They're not breaking the law the way the Kale family did every year, but God is up to something here. And he is, he is doing something very interesting. It has more to do with himself and a valuable lesson, less to do with a river and a bunch of rocks. All right? Verse 4. So the story continues. Next slide, if we will. Verse 4. So Joshua called the 12 men, he's kind of recounting here, whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take, a, take up a stone on his shoulder. This would, we're not talking about reaching down one hand and grabbing a rock, okay? This is not what we're dealing with. This would have been sizable. Put this rock on your shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. So this would have been 12 men. Next slide. So let this be, he says, a sign among you. There is a purpose that God is doing this. There is a reason for this. Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? 
Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel for the next week. No. For the next year. No. Forever. And every single time you pass through this city, Gilgal, we're going to see that in a second, and you see these stones, you're going to be reminded for the rest of your history, right, through the course of this Old Testament history, you're going to be reminded that I showed up at a transition point in your life and I did something significant that only I could do, God seems to be saying. We, we come to the end of verse 7. Let's skip a few verses. Let's jump ahead to verse 15, pick up the story. It says, so the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests, right? They've already done this. They've taken these stones out. Command now the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests saying, come up from the Jordan. And it came about when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. Remember, this is flood stage, chapter 3, verse 15, I believe it is, tells us that the Jordan would overflow its banks during this time of year. Uh, th this was a huge transition. This was a gigantic miracle that God had performed among them. Miracle is now complete. All of Israel, two million plus strong, have crossed over. And take it out of the middle of this Jordan River with much significance are these 12 large stones. Let's move to verse 20. Those 12 stones which they had taken up from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. By the way, this would be the first place that we can see in the promised land in Joshua's day that worship would seem to take place. He said to the stones, uh, to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea. They're connecting dots. God had done the same thing 40 years prior under Moses' leadership. This time, they were leaving Egypt as slaves and moving in toward, or towards the promised land. God parted the Red Sea, Exodus 15. Parted the Red Sea, they crossed on dry ground. All of Pharaoh, his armies, Taurus's chariots, they all perished. God delivered his people, set them free that day 40 years prior. They're connecting the dots. This is a God who works in times of transition. This is a, a God who takes this dot and connects it to that dot and connects it to that dot. And if we take time to look back, we see that in the transitions, as we connect the dots, God to his people are all, is always faithful and he's always good and he's always at work. And so he says, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. And, and here's why I want you to take these stones and I want you to more than likely build them up as an altar, that all the peoples of the earth may do two things. One, that they may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And number two, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. 
Now, we don't know what the structure is here. More than likely, they didn't just take these 12 stones, right, and just come up, you know, uh, off their shoulder, just dump them and leave them. There was probably some structure there. There was probably, in my mind, I just sort of visualized somewhat of a little tower, kind of like a cone going up somewhat. It'd be like a visual vertical altar kind of building its way up to God. And and these, these stones would be assembled in a way that was unmistakable, not just scattered rocks, but anyone would pass by. They would see it, and it would cause them to say, what is going on with all this? What is going on with this, this altar, this tower? What is this all about? And God would say, every time your kids see this and they say, what is going on with this? You take advantage and you leverage that opportunity to tell them two things. Number one, this is a representation. This is a spiritual marker, a visual image that reminds us that our God is unlike any other God in existence. And every time you see this, you're reminded that our God, the one true living God, all other gods are counterfeits, all other gods are fake, all other gods are false, all other gods are little g. But our one true living capital G God is a God who is faithful to his people and is a God who is always infinitely good and is a God who is always at work. So kids, when you see this little tower, these aren't just stones. This reminds us God did a work amongst us. And every time you see it, be reminded that our God is mighty. Connect the dots. Don't miss it. Don't miss the big picture. Don't miss it in life. Connect the dots and be reminded that when those dots represent transition points in your life, that it's there that God was faithful. Can you remember back there in your transition when you had that divorce, when your, your finances tanked, when you lost your job, when you didn't know where you were going to go, when the people you trusted bailed on you? Do you remember what it was like back there and all you had was your faith and you held true to God? And you didn't waver. And yes, there were dark days. And yes, there were times when your heart broke. But you held true to God and God brought you through and now he's blessed you. Do you remember that altar back there? God said every time your mind goes back there, remember your God is mighty and fights for his people. But number two, don't forget that it's also a testimony. That everybody who sees that altar can be reminded that they're called to fear. Not teeth chattering, knees knocking but to with extreme reverence, admiration, love, and devotion will develop a sense of obedience and surrender to that God. See, the altars were there. It wasn't about rocks. It wasn't about a river. They were there that the world would know that God is mighty and that his people would come to fear him and honor him and love him with every part of who they were. This was a spiritual marker to be built. And every time it would be seen, it would remind them of where they'd been. Remember where you were? It would remind them of what God had done. Do you remember what God's done for you when you trusted him? It reminded them of what they learned. What did you learn about God in the midst of the difficulties and transitions of your life? And it would remind them that God had a plan. Every time they'd see it. You know, Joshua wasn't the first to build an altar. He by far wasn't the first. Noah, come off the ark, 40 days of rain. God prepared, made promises to Noah and his family. They would come off the ark. God had demonstrated his judgment. Noah and his family were spared. What does he do in Genesis chapter 8? He builds an altar a commemoration visually that this is what our God has done for us. He saved us. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, that hinge 
in Old Testament history, really New Testament history as well. God makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless your name, I'm going to make your name great. Through you, the nations will come to God. Abraham builds an altar to commemorate that amazing promise that would point to a Messiah centuries later. Isaac would build an altar, Abraham's son. Genesis chapter 26, a town called Beersheba. Jacob would build an altar, at least on a couple of different occasions. One, he'd have a dream that would be of such significance in his life. All he could do is say, I have, to, I have to represent this of what God has done in me, a transition in my life, a change in my life. He built an altar. It was a spiritual marker in his life. Anytime he came back through there, he'd be reminded of what God had done and how his faith had been strengthened and to be a testimony to the nations. Moses would build an altar after the battle that I mentioned when Joshua was the one who led in battle, Exodus 17. Moses would build an altar to commemorate that. And Joshua was not the first to do that. The principle is such that I think it still extends to today that God's people need to be faithful to have spiritual markers in our lives that we can go back to, to where we can be reminded as we connect the dots that in each of those dots that represents a significant event, a transition in our lives, that it's there God has been faithful and it's there that God has been good. They remind us where we were, what God did, what we learned, and how he changed us. And you thought, you thought that hardship was just random, didn't you? You thought that valley was just so random. You thought that darkness in your life, that season when it seemed like you didn't know which way to go, you thought that was so random. And no, it doesn't mean that God brings hurt to us. He doesn't, he, he's a God who loves his own, Right? However, God does allow difficult circumstances in our lives, and oftentimes what He desires to do is in the midst of those difficult circumstances, He wants to bring His light, and He wants to show His wisdom, and He wants to bring His life. And you thought all of that was so random when the bottom fell out, whenever you were so confused, whenever you went through that valley, that difficulty in life. You thought it was so random, and yet there God was at work. There He was showing His power. There He was showing His faithfulness. There He was showing His work. And if you only look back and connect the dots, here's what you'll Find, that those dots were significant, that as he worked in the midst of those dots in your life, that he was molding and shaping you into who you are this very moment on this very day. To put him on display, to give him glory, and to fear him and to trust him and to walk with him like never before. Look at what it says in Psalm chapter 40. Dave, David would know a little bit about this. Listen how he describes his dot, his transition in this instance. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. I think David may have had a specific event in mind here. He says, he brought me up out of the pit of destruction, that transition point in my life when everything fell apart, he brought me up out of that, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song. I had lost my old song. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see, and they will fear and will trust in the Lord, right? God has enabled me to see a spiritual marker in my life, David says. I remember when I was in the pit, and God rescued me and brought me up. This is now a spiritual marker in my life, and because of that marker in my life, the result is, is that my faith is strengthened, my trust is strengthened, and others are going to fear God as a result of it. 
They're going to trust in the Lord. Verse 4, how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. David says, God, if I could go back and see all the dots in my life, and if I were to try to connect all those dots, there would be too many for me to ever finish, right? I could never even finish the puzzle. I could never finish the exercise. There have been so many instances in my life where my dot was filled with transition and fear and difficulty and, 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 and confusion. And yet every single time, God, you drew me up and you blessed me and you took care of me. Every single time. And David may not have had an altar of stones outside of his front door, but in his mind, he could connect dot after dot after dot after dot that pointed and highlighted the faithfulness and the goodness and the work of God in his life. A different psalmist, Psalm chapter 77, verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work. I will connect these dots and I will muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Just a simple Hebrew word at the end that says, you think about this. Dwell on this. Dwell on how God has bailed you out every time. And though that bailout may have looked differently than what you expected, and though you may have carried consequences from some of those dark days, even there his grace is enough. And the psalmist seems to say, so build an altar to the Lord. Build a spiritual altar, not with rocks, not with mortar and bricks, but do something that will enable you never to forget that in the dark times that he met you there and he was faithful and he was good. If it means putting something in your yard to help you remember it, then do it. Don't worship it because it ain't about the altar. If you need to highlight it, write it, post it on Pinterest, put it on social media, crochet it, color a picture, put it on your fridge, whatever you need to do. If you want to make your own little connect the dots picture, then label the dots however you want. What do we need to do to help us to remember that our God is faithful and our God is good and our God is always at work? Four reasons, I think, that we need to be faithful to having spiritual markers in, my, in our lives. Four reasons why I think these are important. I'll hit these and close with a quick little illustration and we're done. First reason is I think spiritual markers help us to keep hope in view. When you go through transition in life, remember those dots are oftentimes transitions. And they're not always easy. And when you're in the midst of a transition, oftentimes it's very difficult and it's very stormy and it's very confusing and it can be downright frightening. And there can be a temptation if we're not careful to think that we are in this storm alone. And if we only go back and we have these spiritual markers in life that we can remember and recount God's faithfulness, whether it's through a journal or whatever it may be for Israel, it was a, it was a heap of stones, that it helps us to maintain hope. Because remember where God was faithful back then? He didn't bring us this far to leave us on a curb and say, I'll see you when you get to heaven. He's faithful today. 
Second reason I think spiritual markers are ultimately important is because they keep us from spiritual drift. They keep us close to the Lord. You know, the enemy loves to whisper doubt and discouragement, doesn't he, whenever you're going through a challenging time. When you're going through transition, the enemy loves to whisper and he loves to nestle up right close to your ear and say, I thought you were trusting God. I thought God was trustworthy. Where is he now? That's what he did to Job. I thought God was a God who's good. Where's the goodness now? Why is he letting you go through this? Maybe he doesn't love you. Maybe he's not for you. Maybe you haven't done it. Maybe, maybe he's let you go. Maybe he's let you wander, right? And when the enemy whispers those things to our ear in the midst of transition, difficult transition especially, it's that spiritual marker, right? Those dots that we've connected that help us to remember that, no, God was good there. He's going to be good here. And it gives us a desire to maintain closeness to him. Third reason I think that spiritual markers are important is because they enhance our testimony. I'd be willing to say most everybody in here, if you were, if you, if you had the courage, right, be strong and courageous, if you had the courage, could probably go on social media. And if you gave this just a little bit thought, could connect a lot of dots, dots that you're willing to do so publicly, right? And could paint a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness in your life. And your story would be a story that is powerful that someone else needs to hear. You've got a story that I don't have, right? You've got a platform that I don't have. And your willingness to share your story painted as you connect the dots of God's faithfulness through transition in your life is a powerful, powerful testimony. A fourth reason I think we need to have spiritual markers in our lives, the reason they're important is because they build our faith. That when you're ready to give in, your spiritual markers remind you, not yet, not never. I don't know what transition is next for you, and I don't know what transition is next for me, but I know there'll be one. The very next transition could very well be the one that puts you down for the count, unless your faith is strong. When you have spiritual markers in your life and you've connected the dots, no matter what comes, you can trust your God because he's been there all this time up to this point. And he's promised he'll never leave you or never forsake you. See, those words sound a little differently now, don't they? In Joshua 1, 9, be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Connect the dots, Joshua. I've brought you where you are and I didn't bring you here to leave you. I'm faithful, and I'm good, and I'm at work. When an eagle bears its young, that little eaglet lives in the nest with mom and dad. Eagles typically mate for life. And so that little eaglet is raised by mom and dad in the nest. Eagles nest typically up to four feet wide. Some have been much bigger, but typically, generally, four feet wide, two to four feet deep. You've seen some of them, right, on pictures or, or out and around and uh, different places maybe you've gone. Uh, I remember being down in Florida a month or two ago, and they showed one to us when we were down there. It's a big old huge nest. So mom bears her young. This little eaglet is hatched and begins to grow, lives in the nest with mom and dad. Mom brings the food, right? tears the food up for the baby, goes out, finds its prey, because that's what eagles do. They bring the prey back. They tear up the food for the child. I know that's very interesting and enjoyable to hear when you're going to lunch in about 20 minutes, right? Feed little baby. Little baby's there, right? Doing this, wanting the next meal. 
and uh, mom and dad deliver. They bring that food. They do everything that's needed for that little baby eaglet. Within about eight to 12 weeks, however, that little eaglet is not so little anymore. In fact, it's about the size of mama eagle. It, it grows rapidly. And so in that nest, you've now got three eagles that are there to eat. And as this little eaglet begins to grow, it's going to have to learn to be on its own. One of the things that happens is, is that mama eagle now brings food back to the nest, but doesn't always share that food. Mama Eagle brings the food home for herself and for Daddy Eagle, and little baby Eagle gets to watch while they eat. It reminds me of the times, sadly, not my finest dad moments, when I'm in the kitchen and I get cereal, and there's just a little bit left, and one of the kids says, I want some, and I was like, get your own cereal, right? It's like, you go get your, this is my cereal, you know, you get a job, and you go, and you shop at Crow, no, I don't go quite that far, right? It's kind of that same mentality, and so Mama Eagle, Daddy Eagle, now they come to eat, Little Baby Eagle wants to eat, and Little Baby Eagle's not getting shared with. And all the while, while Baby Eagle continues to grow now, you've got three birds in this nest that seems to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller. That eagle, as it continues to mature, We'll begin doing something called branching. It will begin to hop from one side of the nest, somewhat around the nest. It will begin to jump outside the nest now onto some branches, and will have to learn to navigate itself back to the nest, all the while part of the process of learning to fly and hunt prey and to survive on its own. It's not an easy process. They say that uh, uh, the majority of eagles don't survive their first year outside the nest. That's why they're endangered. Imagine for a moment this little eagle, however, does survive, and he looks back on that transition, and as eagles are so prone to do, thinking through connecting the dots of their lives, I'm sure eagles do that all the time, right? That little eagle looks back and says, you know what, I remember that difficulty, that dark moment, that valley, when, no, I wasn't booted out of the nest, but I realized I couldn't stay there any longer, and I remember when the food became scarce, and I remember when I was so hungry, and I didn't know what was going on, but now today, as I soar as an eagle, and as I take care of myself, and now I have my own little eagle family, I look back to that dot in my life and realize that it was that transition that made me who I am today. You can't have the slide, right? How much fun those are without the climb to the top. You don't have a slide without the stairs. And oftentimes in life, when we look and we see what a slide and a ride this has been, my, how God has been faithful. It's when we connect the dots and we look at the spiritual markers and we see in the valley, he was there. And he met me. And he changed me. So is your page filled with a bunch of dots that mean nothing? Or have you taken the time to connect the dots of God's faithfulness and his grace and his goodness and his work to paint a beautiful picture that gives him glory, that grows your faith, that makes you who you are today? If you don't have that relationship with Jesus, by the way, let me say all of this points to a Savior who would come, who would die on a cross and rise from the dead so that the most important connection could be made, that all who turn from sin and invite Jesus to come and forgive us and save us can have a relationship with the God who made us forever. Hey, if you've never done that, no better time than today to ask Jesus to step out of heaven and to forgive you and take over your life. And if you've done it, you've got a lot of work to do to connect the dots of all the times 
that God has been faithful. And as you connect it to build a little altar to put him on display. Let's pray. Lord, it's never really been about rocks and rivers, has it? But it always has been about your faithfulness. Every row, every seat occupied in this room by someone who has a relationship with Jesus has a story to tell of how you've been faithful in the dark and how you've been good and how you've worked. And yet, sadly, God, we never slow down enough to connect the dots to finish the picture that puts you on display. Joshua did, and Israel did, and they had a tower of stones to prove it. And God, may we be faithful with a testimony and a story with a heart filled with joy and faith and peace because we've taken the time to look back and to piece together how you've been so faithful and good to us. Times of blessing, doing things we didn't deserve. Times of forgiveness when we needed judgment, or rather deserved judgment. Times where you took the most difficult moments of our lives and just painted a masterpiece. Because you're a God who works all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. God, we want to be people who put you on display. That's what it's always been about. Not our houses, not our gadgets, not our acquisitions or our accomplishments, but about putting you, our God, on display. So Lord, help us to do that and help us to do it well. For those that don't know you today, may they give their lives to Jesus without another hesitation right where they sit, inviting Jesus to come and forgive and to take over their lives. And Lord, give us the courage to follow where you lead, even today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.